0: for professional advice with a personal touch consult fuller landau chartered professional accountants and business advisors click on flmontreal.com 7.06
1: 7.06 on CJAD 800. Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar and filling in for Josh Miller of Philo Landout tonight is Michael Newton. Uh, Michael, welcome to your uh, uh, yearly show. Hey, Dan, how, you Good, how are you doing? Usually I get this job when uh, Josh goes off to Hong Kong, but now he's
2: out traipsing on the beach somewhere. So mm-hmm. uh, that's what he sends me in for.
1: Yeah, in lovely Mexico. So yeah, uh, yeah. have fun, Josh. He's probably listening in uh, from a beautiful uh, beachside bar right now. And uh, with us this evening is Robert Raish, uh, lawyer at Spiegel Sommer. Robert, welcome to CJD. Welcome, Dan. Um, so, guys, let's uh, begin, as we usually do, by just chatting a bit about uh, some of the entrepreneurial news, and we have a couple of stories to get to, um, Michael, and uh, one that I'd like your your thoughts on first is uh, cyber insurance, and this is sort of um, a growing industry with, uh, with hacking, which is costing yeah. now billions of dollars to major corporations and, and small businesses as well. Um, so, this is a kind of an interesting story in the Financial Post in the last day or so for every... Uh, 1,000 houses you ensure you have uh, a rough idea about how many will burn that is sort of the the general uh, I guess uh, um, the stats game. Yeah, this, this is the stat they use for um, uh, for, re- for regular insurance. Uh, but when it comes to hacking, well, it's significantly more serious than that and becoming a lot more uh, problematic. So, what's becoming more popular is buying insurance to protect against the loss of uh, of, of these hacking events. Um, in your experience, Michael, is this uh, is this something that uh, that's becoming more in common? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's one of those
2: areas that I think is still uh, in the infancy stage in terms of coverage and the the, the extreme that the coverage is going to go to if it does happen. Uh, I think for you look at it from a professional firm services like ourself, I mean, you're running two sides. One, you've got access to information on a you know very, very uh, detailed personal information for clients. You also may be holding credit cards, you may be doing a number of things, plus if you're doing any consulting to the outside world in a technology environment, uh, clearly you're you know, potentially exposed in that area, and I don't think everybody really has a handle yet on what that's going to look like from a policy perspective, a coverage perspective, and uh, you know, you said one one thousand homes burn. Uh, the stats uh, really is just kind of coming to the forefront. So it's uh, it's going to be a very very expensive proposition at the end of the day, and I'm not exactly sure where we're going to end up. But it's something everybody should at least be looking into at this point.
1: Insurance experts themselves are saying they don't really know where this is going. It's kind yeah. of a kind of a new market, uh, so it remains to be seen how popular they're they're going to it's going to get. But they're they're pretty optimistic it seems as to uh, the growth potential here, especially as we do more and more business online and there become more and more issues, uh, uh, I guess, with cybersecurity and, uh, and it's uh, it should be a concern, right? I mean, if you're going to protect your uh, by a, by an alarm at your business, you, should be able to uh, you know. I mean, your... clearly,
2: if you ever met an insurance executive who's not excited about the possibility <laughs> of trying to sell a new product, uh, and this this is going to be a, a a massive fear sale, I think at the end of the day, which uh, which is, remains to be seen how much people take it. But I know that from a professional, again, from a professional firm's environment, it really is fitting into your critical plan and your disaster plans. And a lot of people are uh, really starting to get worried about it. Uh, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's way deeper than what we would normally consider.
1: Robert, from your perspective, are you finding that this is becoming more and more of an issue, cybersecurity, uh, for more companies?
3: It hasn't come to my attention other than it's sitting in a partner's meeting saying, do we need it? And the answer was yes, so we're looking into it. I can only imagine that the pricing is going to be on the high side because they're going to assume the worst, but it will, I'm sure, shake out and be fair, but we're definitely looking at it for our own firm, and I assume all professional firms will be looking at it, just because the lawsuits could be out of control in terms of how much you could be sued because people look at their own personal information and they take it quite seriously. So it's going to be an interesting dynamic how this develops.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, if the house burns, you know what the house was worth. It's an easy, relatively easy market calculation. Uh, clearly, from a cyber perspective, I mean, these could be. Uh, not only are you talking from a, a far-reaching effect of not being able to quantify, you're also talking about ransom. You're talking about being held to uh, to a number of things that we're just not uh, not used to doing. So it's uh, yeah, there's an evolution that's there. Uh, I would say anybody looking into it should
1: be look. You know, if you're not looking into it, you should be, but tread very very carefully. Could you, could you see that perhaps cyber insurance uh, would be a staple for even small businesses, maybe in the next decade or so?
2: Yeah, anybody who's going to be handling anything that is going to be sensitive information. So, I mean, small business, unless you're uh, only working with a cash register in cash, and if you're taking credit cards, you're going to be handling sensitive information. Somewhere in that exercise, you're, you're going to have to uh, protect how you store that information
1: and then what the implications are at the end of the day. Another uh, story I'd like to run by you—a bit of a, a larger scope on this one. Um, based on uh, some political events in the states and in Canada, the energy market is looking very different right now. And uh, Obama, uh, not exactly warm on uh, on pipelines, and the, this new Liberal government in Canada, uh, not as enthusiastic as well as the previous <laughs> government. Where does the energy sector sit at right now, in your view, Michael? Uh, how where where is the future, and and is there optimism? I think the energy sector right now is sitting far right, hoping that the Republicans
2: get in next year in the federal election in the U.S., which is going to change the whole face. Right now you're dealing with a very conservative uh, you know, mindset from uh, from Obama's government who doesn't want to trade anywhere close to anything to do with an environmental factor. Uh, the unfortunate part from a Canada-U.S. trade relation is that uh, their largest trading partner is now being snubbed in favor of uh, some South American countries who are producing oil oil and pumping oil into the U.S., which normally would be coming from Canada. So I think uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau is now going to have a bit of a political uh, quagmire to deal with on this end, and there's no doubt that uh, I think a lot of the energy sector is going to be hoping that uh, somebody on the right side of, uh, of the equation gets into power next year in the U.S.
1: And Canada's—I uh, mean, the majority of Canada's oil experts go to go to the states, and and so what uh, can you speak maybe to impacts beyond sort of the immediate? I mean, the, beyond the energy companies and sort of the ripple effect it could have on, on Canada's economy. Well, there's no
2: doubt as being an export-based company, and and, and the resource sector being one of our uh, one of our largest, uh, you know, export export commodities, uh, we are always affected when uh, somebody who buys our goods is not uh, going to continue under the same you know, same method. Uh, I think there was a lot of proof. Uh, that from an economic standpoint, the Keystone Pipeline was a positive move. But again, that's from a financial perspective. Um, and I think a lot of people have used the political agenda to drive away any kind of economic agenda. Uh, and I'm not even sure that uh, even beginning to try and take a stance on this is a- a- anywhere close to being a good political move on my part. Maybe, Robert, would you like to uh, <laughs> would you like to pipe in and see if uh, well, excuse I believe, the pipeline? Well, uh,
3: or- I believe it actually is going to be good for Canada because... Price of oil may go up. Price of oil goes up. The Canadian dollar goes up. There's a direct relation between the two. It will, if Canada goes to an LNG, liquid natural gas pipeline to the uh, Pacific coast and um, accesses Asia as opposed to the States. And remember, oil is fungible, meaning a drop of oil here is the same as a drop of oil there, even though it's categorized as dirty, which is nonsense. All this is is Obama's legacy of changing the dynamic for climate change Um, This is just political. It's silly because as I say a drop of oil a barrel of oil from Canada from Venezuela ultimately refined is the same Barrel of oil. So if the price of oil goes up because of this, it's better for Canada. So I'm actually buying oil stocks as we speak because I think this is good for Canada. Got, they got creamed and I'm in there buying. So, But I'm a contrarian anyways. But this is nothing more than political. And I won't even go into climate change and that <laughs> politics because I'm not here to talk about politics. But a lot of that I think is nonsense too.
1: We'll, we'll talk about that maybe after 8 o'clock on, on my show, but uh, here's, here's an interesting quote from uh, Tom Pickering, who's the president and chief investment officer at Auspice Capital Investors, uh, talking about Obama's decision. He says, the news will be uh, used as a catalyst for action for Canadian energy instead of relying, he says, on, uh, on Big Brother. Huh. Interesting. Uh,
2: you know, I think at this point there's a lot of speculation. Nobody's too sure. And, uh, you know, I think uh, Robert hit the nail on the head. It's called political legacy at this point. And Obama's uh, upsetting an awful lot of people in his last year of power. And uh, I am assuming he will continue to do so until uh, he's graciously escorted
1: from the White House after next year's election. Uh, Coming up next, we'll talk about uh, the business of law with Robert Reich of Spiegel-Somer and uh, all kinds of issues, including uh, running the business day-to-day, marketing, uh, HR as well. We'll talk about that later in the program. Uh, Today's entrepreneur on CJAD 800, Michael Newton, is sitting in for Josh Miller this evening. It's coming up to 7.15. Let's head over to the CJAD 800 Traffic Center with the latest here is Kira Yeager.
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: 719 on today's Entrepreneur Inspiring Stories from Outstanding Business People. Dan Delmar, along with Phil Landau's Michael Newton, in for Josh Miller tonight. And with us this evening, Robert Reich of Spiegel Sommer. And uh, Michael, we're talking about uh, the business of law tonight on the program. Should be very interesting. And uh, for those that don't know Spiegel Sommer, uh, Maitre Reich, do you want to just give us a sort of a bit of a, a quick uh, glimpse at what the firm is about and what kind of work that you do?
3: Well, we're a law firm, I would say, close to 50 lawyers. I never quite can put a circle around it. We specialize in four main areas. Tax is probably our biggest area, 20 lawyers in tax. Tax planning, all aspects, tax litigation. Mergers and acquisition that goes hand-in-hand with tax. Litigation, both personal litigation and commercial litigation, and real estate. So those are our four core areas. And then we have offshoots, such as intellectual property, uh, labor law. But those are the four main areas that um, we're involved with.
2: Yeah, one of the, uh, one of the reasons, uh, you know, to talk to Robert, it's, it's funny because, you know, we both live in the professional services world and, you know, everybody seems to forget that uh, we actually run businesses, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, funny enough, uh, we are supposed to be making a few bucks at the end of the day while we're doing this. So, uh, you know, if you go back, and Robert and I were talking about this earlier, where, you know, if you go back far enough, uh, there was only a few people that ever actually looked at their professional offices as a business. Most people were more concerned about the professional practice component. Uh, practicing law, or in our case, practicing accounting or practicing tax or whatever the case was going to be, uh, without recognizing uh, that you need to run a, a you know a, a corporate model in order to get it working. So when Robert and I were talking about this, I think the key that we were looking at is, you know, Robert uh, was managing partner for 28 years at Spiegel going back to in the early 80s, I think, Robert, not to date you at all, but uh, going back a few years. And, you know, I said to him, you know, when you, were, when you started out, were you guys looking at it like a business? And I, your answer to me was?
3: At the beginning, when I started as managing partner, which I was a kid at the time, um, really business was the furthest thing away. It was doing an honorable profession. But I soon realized that if you didn't run it like a business, then you were doomed to lose your good lawyers. If you didn't pay them enough, there was somebody else going to pay them more. So over the years, our office, as well as other offices, developed a much more business-like model, as Michael said. For example, we started with a basic sheet every day. This is the cash in the bank. This is how much we received today. This is how much we paid out today. These are our obligations in the next two weeks. And that was available to everyone. It was available to all the lawyers, to all of the students. Secretaries could look at it. So everybody knew exactly where we stood. Then that led to monthly financial statements. So three days or four days after the end of the month, we knew the financial statements. This led to budgeting. Anyways, it turned into a... a probably what all businesses do, budgets before the end of the year. Monthly financial statements to know where we stand and deal with issues if things aren't going as well. And daily cash flow, so everybody is at one-to-one with what's going on in the office. So it definitely changed and continues to evolve as a business, because if you don't run it as a business, you're doomed to failure.
2: hundred percent. I mean, if you look back and, you know, I've been managing partner at Fuller now for 12 years, and I look back at the access to information only going back 12 years and the ability to get timely information to run, uh, you know, it took us time to get the information out to do what we have to do and as we sit and we look at the metrics and follow the trending and do whatever you're going to do which you know by the way we profess to our clients we probably should do it ourselves uh, you know at the end of the day you recognize that you're actually uh, you you can do a lot of management if you're actually on top of things and you know I always I always used to joke that uh, you know we got a lot of really good practicing accountants or lawyers and firms that you know independently on their own might not be in business for very long but if they're put in the right environment with somebody taking charge I think, uh, you know, they they succeed quite well. And I think, Robert, over the years, you guys have proven that, you know, so long as you run it like a business, you can be a very, very successful practice.
3: Well, this weekend, for example, was November 7th and 8th. And I was looking at my October 31st financial statements, year-to-day statements, the individual statements for all lawyers, both partners and non-partners. I circled some good and some bad and things that I will deal with with the managing partner at our upcoming partners meeting. And the information I received is no different than what any other partner received. So we believe in an open system where everybody sees full information.
1: We're joined by Robert Reich of spiegel Sommer. More about the business of law in a second here on Today's Entrepreneur at 723.
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: Coming up to 727 on Today's Entrepreneur, we're joined by Robert Reich of Spiegel-Somer. And uh, here's a quick question about uh, about professionals and, and professional starting businesses, uh, Robert. Uh, is, is it uh, difficult sometimes to, to market as a professional? Uh, of course, I'm sure uh, as many orders uh, have, you probably have some really tight regulations. How do you get around that? How do you uh, put your name and your firm's name out there?
3: You go on CJD on the Entrepreneur <laughs> Show, and you that will uh, help. You're welcome, Robert. Well, when I started, when I started out, from for me, it was giving courses to accountants because I realized that as a tax lawyer, my best source of business would be accountants. So I started teaching accountants tax law. So they, if they felt my course was worthwhile, then I w- would get. Referrals from the accountants and it wasn't an accountant came they had numerous clients so that was a multiplier effect. So everyone has to find what is the best access to a potential client base, but I don't think things have really changed. I'm not so sure things like blogs and um, websites really help. I think it's the word of mouth. A referral from another client or a friend, especially another client, is worth its weight in gold as compared to just a cold advertising. You probably remember in the Gazette there were tombstones where a law firm would have just their name and the name of the partners underneath it. And that was somehow supposed to sell their firm. Never worked. It's really go out there, make yourself known, get involved in charities, get out, help the community do free legal work, whatever it takes, and people will say, hey, those guys are good, or they could say you're bad, which obviously has a negative uh, impact, but get your name out there, go on shows like this, give speeches, which I do regularly, give courses, write articles, and that's the way I I did it, and I try to coach the people in my firm to do the same thing.
2: It's funny, we tried teaching lawyers once, but we could never get a word in.
1: Are our accountants that much better? No, never.
2: Really. <laughs> well, it depends which one. Some of them,
1: yeah, some of them are afraid of their own shadows. So. Uh, we have about just a minute before news, Michael. But any thoughts on that question on on marketing yourself, perhaps as a professional?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you go back to Robert saying the old tombstones, I mean, we were under pretty strict legislation for a long time when it came down to how you could advertise the firm and what you could say, and we're still. You know, pretty well controlled by our professional orders, uh, though there are ways around it. The reality is, 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 you know, it's reputation, it's credibility, especially in a city like Montreal, where you know, you're, it's not a big city. You 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 do a good job, it gets out there. You do a bad job, sadly, it gets out there even quicker. Uh, but we're selling, we're selling integrity, we're selling credibility, we're selling, you know, something that uh, doesn't matter what I say in the paper is not going to sell at the end of the day. All I can do is, is put the name out there and then you
1: have to still, you have to deliver the goods. You have no doubt. Our guest this evening is Robert Reich, a lawyer at Spiegel Solmer, partner as well, and uh, we'll talk about other issues about running that, uh, that firm as a business and also uh, human relations. Uh, we'll have a chat about that later on in the program here on Today's Entrepreneur at 7.30.
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on FLMontreal.com. 7.35
1: Seven thirty-five on today's Entrepreneur. Welcome back. This is a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, and filling in for Fuller Landau's Josh Miller is Michael Newton, and uh, we're joined by Robert a uh, lawyer uh, with Spiegel Somer. And uh, earlier, uh, we were talking about uh, your involvement in the business. So you, so you were Robert' managing partner. You decided to to step down to, to pass on the torch. Can you talk a bit about that process? Uh, perhaps why you chose that, and and how that process went uh, to sort of sort of uh, becoming a uh, uh, sort of stepping away from from that role
3: well after 28 years and I was close to turning 60 I felt as now one of the older people in the firm on a basis of our firm makeup we had to pass I had to pass the torch to someone younger Um, I had a partner in mind who had worked with me on the compensation committee that was at the time 36 or 37 Um, So, uh, of course, this had to be passed by the partnership as a whole, but I felt he was the strongest economically, financially, and um, could also continue his practice because when I was managing partner, I had a full load as a lawyer, so I didn't just manage the firm. I was managing the firm almost when I could find the time, which isn't necessarily the best way. So Alex Dufresne, who now manages the firm, does more in terms of spending time managing the firm. He still has his own book of business, but things have transitioned, and I wanted the management to be looked at by somebody younger and somebody that um, had grown up with me in learning to manage, but now it's his own style.
2: Yeah, the managing partner role in firms, is uh, it's, it's, it's a little daunting at times. I mean, uh, as Robert explains, I think you were doing the managing partner duties in nights and weekends uh, when you weren't doing your regular day job, uh, which was uh, very common practice along a lot of professional firms. Um, the evolution to a lot of the bigger firms now is more going more to work more corporate model, not necessarily our mid-sized firm mentality, but it is more of a full-time uh, corporate role a CEO type perspective um, I still split between a client base and between uh, the managing partner duties I wouldn't give up the client base and it really is not a power issue it really is about you know the, no, the the number of families that I work with spending the time and, and, and it keeps me fresh and it's funny because when I took over as managing partner I had one comment and was I said why would you want to take on that role and I said well I've been con- consulting to people for years maybe it's time I prove to myself that I can actually run a real business so takes on a new but it, the, the, no doubt Robert that the, the the challenges facing uh the evolution of the of the position of managing partner I mean we've always had HR issues we've always had growth issues we've always had you know do you reach out where do you open an office what do you do but in a fast-paced world that we're living in now I think it takes on a whole different uh, whole different
3: meaning I don't know I hear that every year this is going to be the hardest year and this is it, you, I think just people evolve situations evolve management evolves. so is it harder now Perhaps, but I really don't think so. I think it's there's always been issues. You and I were talking when we had dinner today yeah. about some of the hard issues, issues about aging partners and perhaps early signs of dementia amongst partners. How do you deal with that? Trying that's, to deal with the dignity. That's a really and, hard issue. Yeah. What do you find? Well, how do you deal with somebody you think may have been stealing from you yeah. or you don't trust anymore? What happens if somebody simply doesn't want to work hard? Those issues have been around and will continue to be around. The... It is a faster paced world, but that has, it always speeds up and it's always the most important election or the hardest time or the most difficult time. I really don't believe that. I think that people manage according to. The environment, but the issues are timeless in terms of what we have to or what a managing partner has to deal with.
2: Well, I think it's perfect because if you look at the issues, I mean, I started in the profession in 89, and I don't think the issues, the underlying issues, have changed since 1959. You know, when you get into it, really, what are you looking at? You're looking at people, right? We run a people business. We're not selling. Well, I, just, no, I say we do anything. two
3: things. I have two things that I strive for and I will absolutely hammer to every lawyer in the firm, which is service to clients. Clients, we're a service industry. There is nothing that is more important than servicing the clients. And second of all is recruiting top talent because in order to service clients, you need the brains. And as I told you a story, we've recruited unilingual francophones and who are brilliant. They learned English quick enough or unilingual. English will learn French quick enough, but you cannot replace brains. So the talent issue is something that's near and dear to my heart I'm still involved in recruiting and servicing to clients is primordial so if I, don't get a, if I get a complaint from a client that somebody hasn't returned a phone call in three days, I will walk into that partner's office or that associate's office and find out why.
2: So talk a little bit about the talent. I mean, there's no doubt that everybody's fighting for the same pool of people on an annual basis. I mean, you guys have a certain reputation, which will in and of itself draw people to the firm. But what are some of your recruiting techniques? Where, when you go to universities, what are you looking for? What about lateral movements?
3: Well, when I go to the universities, I stop. I start with Mark's. Because marks, you cannot lie, and if people have consistently done well at all levels of their education, including law school, they are definitely going to be likely to do the best in a law firm. Obviously, beside that, there's issues of could they attract clients, do they, um, could they engender confidence by clients. So there's other soft issues, but the real thing we look for is top marks because we believe that's the best indication of being a good lawyer. Now, when we hire people laterally, which means from another law firm, that's a whole other dynamic because they haven't grown up in the system. It's like a hockey player that's grown up in the Canadian's farm system. You know what you're gonna get because the kid has been there since he's 16. But when you hire somebody at 30 as a hockey player, you have to go a lot on faith. And especially in law firms, it's not like you can watch the person on TV every night and see if they score goals or they play their guts out. So lateral harder, hires have been trickier and people have stolen people from us. And we do. I'd like to think we haven't stolen people because I think it's a little bit unethical. But uh, when we hire headhunters that go out and get li- lateral hires, we are a little more careful in that as opposed to bringing the people through the the own, our own system which usually starts in second or third year law, third year law school and goes right through the bar school and uh, we know what we're getting
2: the ethics of hiring from other firms is an interesting one i mean uh, we've watched it go from as robert said it was finding interesting you gave, kind of gave me the golden rule that you will not you know steal from somebody that either has uh, been a friend of the firm or uh, you know that you've known for a long time kind of if that I know unwritten somebody in rule in the firm
3: that uh, I would first call them uh, or I wouldn't even approach them or but who I would take from are people who've taken from right. me and I've had almost, I wouldn't say physical fist fights, but close to it. <laughs> and I remember somebody was with a senator, and I basically accused them of stealing somebody that we had groomed for three years. He says, how could you do it in front of a senator? And I used a few expletives, and I said, because sure. you stole that guy. Yeah. And you and I talked about the economics of a young lawyer. You don't make money on a young lawyer for two years. Yeah. So after grooming somebody and helping them write memos and teaching them everything you know, and then just at that point they get plucked from you, is very upsetting.
2: It is. The ethics aren't there. I mean, we've gone from seeing headhunters calling to now actually having HR people within other firms calling our people directly. So people don't seem to care anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, you're right, the economics of, of losing somebody is going to cost you one to one and a half times their salary. So if you're paying somebody $100,000 on top of their salary, it's going to cost you another hundred to one hundred and fifty in training time. Uh, that's a big, a big kick at the can to have somebody else uh,
1: steal out of your pocket. Robert, what's a common mistake that uh, the people who are running law firms make in terms of uh, the business side anyway?
3: They aren't tough enough. They don't look at the numbers. There's been a few colossal collapses. And if you read the story of the collapses, they were expecting their billings to increase in the second half of the year. You don't run a business based on hope. Hope is not a strategy. You've got to look at monthly financial statements. And I would say the only time we ever were really scared was in the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. And I had just done a budget and I immediately circled around and changed my budget, saying, I've got to change this because it looked like the end of the world, or at Mm. least uh, a significant dent in law firm businesses. You've got to react. You've got to know how to react. You can't, as I say, hope is not a strategy. You've got Mm. to be on top of it. And that's why the daily, monthly budgets, all of those things, daily daily cash flows, monthly uh, results, Budgets in advance, it is a business. It's it's like running a business. It's mm-hmm. funny
2: how that happens, eh? While you're trying to do all the ethical sides, you got to make sure that you still have a
1: you still have a pot the next day. We, we've seen some of the headlines: the death of the big law firm. What do you think? Is is that exaggerated?
3: No, I don't. I, I think that the big law firms are here to stay because they add something that a firm like ours could not. Um, we we cannot give client's global service, meaning if somebody has a problem in Africa, we're part of a network, but that is not the same as having a global law firm that has a, an office in Africa, an office in in London, in Paris, in the States, multiple offices. So the big law firm on an international scale, I think are here to stay, but I think good local talent who can underprice the big BMs are also, there's a niche for them as well. So what we, we try to stick to what we do best. And we've actually had sessions where we say, how can we improve? Should we add new practice areas? Should we go into other parts of the law that we don't do now? And the answer was no. Let's bolster up the four areas that we're known for and we're good at, and let's just become the best in Montreal.
1: Robert Raich of spiegel Sommer joins us. Coming up, we'll talk about HR issues with Michelin Mayette of Fuller-Landau. This is Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD 800 at 745. Turn over to the CJAD 800 Traffic Centre as we... Uh
0: for professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: 7.50 on today's entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people. Dan Delmar and Fuller Landau's Michael Newton and for Josh Miller tonight. And this evening, we have Robert Raich, a lawyer at Spiegel Solmer. And we also welcome Micheline Mayette back to the program. She's an HR consultant at Fuller Landau. So uh, welcome back, Micheline. Thanks, and we'll uh, focus a little bit on uh, on HR uh, from the perspective of professional firms. Uh, so, one thing that came up in the conversation earlier, Michael, that was really interesting was uh, the recruiting aspect, and sometimes the rather aggressive. Uh, manner in which some professional firms... Uh, you can, can use can the recruit. word aggressive. I like to think of it as a tad unethical, but hey, the, these things happen. Um, so have you, have you heard of stories like this before, Michelin? I mean, uh, you know, one firm calling another firm's HR department or just calling directly to the office saying, we want yeah. you?
4: Yeah, I yeah. know. It definitely happens more and more today. And I think with um, easy access, like uh, through social media, like LinkedIn and Facebook and all these different places, it's much easier to get in contact with people. It used to be that uh, you know, firms would kind of hide their, you know, their Roster. staffing lists of, as much as possible. And headhunters would try to find creative ways to get past the receptionist to try to identify the right person. But we're way, way past that today. I mean, it's very easy to find out who that key person you want is in that company and just contact them directly through uh, through social media.
2: Yeah, we're pretty much looking at an environment now where I know that anybody's going to top up whatever salaries out there by 10 points. I mean, it's a given So because no, nobody's going to jump for dollar for dollar at the end of the day unless they're not happy with the job. So it's inevitable that there's going to be a premium paid, which, and Robert and I were talking about this before, when that premium starts to be paid, you end up with all of a sudden throwing your salary scales out of whack with everything that's there. So it's kind of a rejigging of the environment. But Michelin's 100% right. There's no doubt that the ease of, of access to people is is there uh, and will continue to be there. It's not going to get any better. So it really, when you get right down to it, Michelin, it, it really revolves around retaining the people that you have have and the things that you're going to do to keep people happy where they are, because there's no way you can shield them from the outside world.
4: No, I mean, a happy employee won't leave, you know, when you're at a certain salary, we're not going to leave for a few thousand more necessarily. I mean, yes, I mean, maybe a lot of people have, have a price, but within reason, a lot of people who are very happy in the position they're in, there's a certain stability with knowing where you work. A lot of people don't want to change just for the sake of changing. So I think as long as you, you know, consciously make sure that you're keeping people happy, I think uh, that's, but I, a, that's a good key to preventing them from getting headhunted.
2: But I think what we're starting to see is a lot more dollars being spent on HR and the mm-hmm. HR people. I mean, the reference to full-time equivalents, whereas you know, you used to be able to get away with one HR person for 60, 70 people. Now you're getting two and three, and the, the amount of time and energy being spent to maintain
1: is the is the associated cost with a, with a free market. Now, uh, back to retaining for a second, Michelin, because this is pretty interesting. Uh, w- what do you make of the challenges that professional firms have uh, in terms of retaining retaining employees? And I'll add uh, perhaps retaining younger millennial employees that may be uh, a condition to want more perks, for example, that may be a little bit less common in, in professional firms?
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think with the new generation, I mean, I mean firms are built ar- around a kind of an older philosophy, I guess you could say. Like there's a, a lot of emphasis on putting in time and putting in hours, because for professional firms, most of them, the revenues are directly linked to a certain extent with the number of hours people put in, even more so than maybe other types of businesses. So but today, it's, you know, a lot of people care about their life outside of work, you know, so a lot of people don't want to work necessarily the same amount of hours they did, or maybe just more flexibility in terms of when they can work them, Um, you know, now with technology, really, a lot of people can work kind of from anywhere. So I think that's, uh, flexibility is really key when it comes to, uh, yeah. We're starting to see in
2: a lot of the, uh, a lot of professional firms is this smaller footprint per employee at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. hoping to not have as many people in the office to chew up the 40, 50, $60 uh, a foot rental charges. You're getting to a basic uh, floor plan where everybody has the same thing from partners to juniors. Um... You know, long-term, I guess maybe it's uh, that's where it's going. i still kind of a little bit old-fashioned when it comes to that, and I think you really need to still have an environment that people want to come to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, you're still collaborating. Robert, I don't know about you guys, but uh, you're, still, you're ex- still expecting to see people do some work once in a while physically, aren't you?
3: Well, we monitor. We have targets for every lawyer, and uh, when we do our budgets, we target hours. And if they aren't... Pr- Producing the hours, we talk to them. Obviously, there's issues, sick kids, sickness, right. age. But yes, definitely, for, to put somebody in a place where somebody else could be, they have to do at least a minimum amount of both work and good work because you can put in work and it could be a waste of time work or you could be very efficient so we look at the efficiency factor as well as the hours themselves
2: are you do you the budgets that you're setting for individuals working are they i'm assume they're relatively high from a chargeable perspective
3: no they're not they're reasonable i would say that the typical lawyer in our firm non-partners about 1500 hours
2: 1500
1: chargeable hours
3: yes and partners probably realistically 12 to 1300
1: okay Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD 800. In a moment, we'll have Robert Reich's One Piece of Advice for Today's Entrepreneur.
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: Well, Robert, there's one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur in a moment. But first, final thoughts on HR issues when it comes to professional firms with Michelin Mayette of Fuller Landau. And Michelin, uh, quickly, we only have about a a minute or so, but um, focus, uh, if you will, specifically on sort of the professional development and how how do you sort of effectively manage your your human resources uh, in a way that will make sure that this next generation Coming in, uh, as as is the case with Spiegel Sommer, uh, can can take over some of those uh, those uh, management roles.
4: Well, I think in a profession where you know specialty services, knowledge, and uh, relationships are so key, it's even more important to make sure that you think about succession planning, mentoring. Um, so making sure to conserve those relationships. So if ever you lose a person, whether it's a competitor or just uh, you know, I always say if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, who's going to take your place? You know. So I think it's always good to make sure you're thinking of these things in advance um, because you lose somebody in a key specialty. It's like a company losing a product they're selling at the end of the day. So it's, it's even more important.
2: Yeah, no, de- definitely. I mean, the, the the transition is hard because, you know, for most people, that's power, right? Knowledge is power. And certainly in a professional environment, knowledge is even more power. So between the client base and what's between your two ears is pretty much what you've built over the last 40 years. And trying to get people to pass that on is is is, is, is one of the challenges, as Robert was referring to before in running a professional office, is that ability to, how, how do you deal with people that are starting to step down, retire, uh, you know, passions what else do they have to do i mean uh, robert's a good example robert has a couple other odds and ends he likes to keep himself occupied with so i'm not worried about him if uh, if he ever gets to that stage but there are a lot of
1: people that just kind of run out of things to do and uh, usually robert at the end of the program we asked uh, our guests uh, what your one piece of advice for, for today's entrepreneur would be uh, your thoughts
3: two pieces service your clients to the max run your firm like a business and you will have a very successful professional firm
1: robert reich of spiegel Selmer thanks so much for, for uh, joining us tonight and uh, Michelin Maeda, full Orlando as well. Thanks for joining us. And uh, and Michael, thanks. Uh, we'll maybe see you uh, next year. I, I just want to know how many more episodes I have to come to before you stop saying I'm filling in for Josh no. A <laughs> couple more. Okay. Uh, thanks very much. Josh <laughs> is back next week. The Exchange is next on CJAD 800. It's 8 o'clock. Nice to